up, Pooch? What up, what up? How's, uh, how's everything going here? And... Oh, you know, the world is burning in very and it rained a lot and apparently got into a, uh, an electrical socket somewhere outside the house and then it shorted and then like the pump started going crazy and then there was water in the basement and we don't know where it came from. So good, good. <laughs> That's kind of, that sounds very similar to what we've been going through. Yeah. Yeah. COVID, COVID's going around, people are panicking and, uh, and, and we've been having a ton of rain as well. And I, I did, we, we just had a massive like storm come by and I did a quick drive up and down the PCH and, half the traffic lights didn't work. It was a car crash. People just forgot how to drive pretty much. Um, yeah. Weird, weird, weird times. Just everything feeling a little, a little bit off. Yeah. I remember that episode we did a little while ago and we we're talking about Omicron saying, you know, full disclosure, we're not scientists or whatever, but we, we, we have no idea whether it's going to be a, you know, a horrible, terrible thing, or it's going to be a complete nothing burger. So like a couple of weeks have passed since then. And still, by the way, I'm still not totally sure whether it's going to be a horrible, terrible, awful thing or a complete nothing burger, but I'm looking yeah. around like, okay, so it's December 19th right now, as we're recording this, um, Netherlands has gone, the, the Netherlands have gone into a complete lockdown, complete total state of lockdown. Um, there are now like lines around the block or testing centers in New York city. Um, uh, places like uh, let's see, France, where I was supposed to spend my New Year's, has apparently canceled the public New Year's celebrations uh, in mm-hmm. Paris. So that's not going to happen. But they haven't gone into lockdown, nor have they like shut down restaurants and stuff like that. So it's kind of varying degrees of severity in terms of the reaction. But I don't know how this is going to develop over the next ten days. And honestly, it it just sucks, man. Like it's, it's yeah. Once once you start getting like a bit of a sense of March, 2020 all over again, where it's like, Oh, I can't do anything because everything is locked down. And because Lord knows what's going to happen. And I can't meet anyone because they might test positive in a couple of days. Like that, that it's, it brings back like such horrible memories. It's yeah. It's just shitty overall. Like, you know, so apparently in a couple, in two weeks, it's going to be 2022, which should be spelled two zero two zero dash T O O. Yeah, if if this goes badly, um, and yeah. I don't know, man, it just feels like okay, this is this is the new normal now. This is the way we live, rolling yeah. lockdowns and and COVID scares and booster shots and and I mean it's it's probably going to be like that until you know I and I kind of mentioned this in the previous episode as well, but like you know I went to get my hair cut the other day and I talked to the barber and he's like i i i've gotten to a point where it's just like I, I just don't care anymore like it's it's not it's no longer a political thing it's just for for my livelihood to continue i gotta i just i just i have to get to work <laughs> and if, if shutdowns keep happening this yeah. is gonna suck which is the case for most people right yeah exactly um, and uh by the way i got my booster shot so i'm glad i'm glad i got that uh already um Thankfully, it was nowhere. I, I didn't feel anything. I didn't have any like side effects or anything. Um, and nice. I also took the flu shot while I was there. So I got the booster and I got the flu shot. Um, so apparently I am ready to publicly lick handrails and in, in COVID infested areas like airports and maybe use a yeah. public water fountain. Just be brave. Actually, no, don't do that. Anyone listening, please don't do that. Um, yeah, because because why why else would you take the booster shot? Right. Yeah, no, but I mean, I'm I'm glad I took the booster, and now it's just a matter of I don't know how things are going to progress. So we shall see mm-hmm. what happens and what opens and what closes and what I can and can't do and where we can and can't fly. Um, Indeed. 
good times good times Sucks. this is like uh this 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 episode like our, i feel like these episodes are probably going to be dug up like sometime in like 100 200 years and be like this is the way things were during the roaring 20s part this two was before <laughs> they you know discovered blah blah that kills all viruses with one pill yeah yeah they're like shutdowns and you stay at home and all you have is a laptop like what that's so how can people live yeah, it's like one day people one day people are going to look back at this and it's going to be us like reading stories about how people died of kidney stones like 200 years ago yeah like, that yeah. killed people like yeah yeah stupid <laughs> just, just uh, if, human being if you live on the east coast yeah <laughs> if, if you live on the east coast and you take a walk through any church and you see like gravestones of people like oh this kid was like four years four years old when he died it's because he had like a fever and like typhoid fever or something it's like seriously yeah. like that that that's what it took yeah yeah i feel so like this yeah, is it just this yeah. the idiots who make the argument like oh things were better in the past like dude in 1850 half of all kids were dying before age 10 like what the fuck are you talking about yeah. what was exactly. better in the past like you want to go back to the days where you have to spend hours just like to do your land your, your laundry by hand and there was no electricity yeah. and, and... <laughs> yeah yeah it was like yeah go back to the 50s it's like okay yeah music is a little bit better but you know any now and then you might be blown up by a nuclear bomb or like this you know it's it's just uh every era had its like craziness i feel and and, and 2020s is just very and in every area we <laughs> every era we look back and we can't believe that that was that particular era's craziness yeah yeah exactly yeah good so, times <laughs> natural progression of things anyways pretty much pretty much enough conspiracy crap on to different conspiracy crap where did we leave off last time <laughs> leave um, leave off I, laugh time I don't, I don't know what i said where did we leave <laughs> off last time laugh i did it again <laughs> i'm this forgetting is, uh, how to speak is this a, is this, this a is, symptom of omicron i think this is yeah this is that's a symptom of, of okay uh, so how, how did we end it last time <laughs> so last time before the aiden interview which again right. highly recommend you check out because it was yes. the best one of the top ones we did um so we last touched off we last left off basically um talking about who the real identity of satoshi nakamoto is and we didn't really single out a specific person but we dived into Nick Zabo, into um, Len Sassman, into the theory that it might have been a group. Um, yeah, it might have been Aziz. Yeah, yeah. He uh, mm -hmm. when when he was a senior in high school, definitely was able to put together something that that complex. Um, mm -hmm. And I I helped me my my nine year old self definitely helped. Um, but uh, I feel like the one person we kind of put a lot of emphasis on was Len Sassman because all the evidence that existed for if you believed in the single person founder of bitcoin theory um just all signs pointed to him really so pretty much what what i was thinking of doing at least is kind of doing a deep dive into him and you know i know there's a lot of evidence out there and, and if if looking at the evidence alone that lee sassman would have been satoshi nakamoto this could have been a two to three hour episode if aziz was the person leading it um on my part the the number one question I asked wasn't necessarily what's the evidence, although I'm very curious about it. It was mostly who is the guy? You, you know, like Len Sassman's a very big figure in 
the the cryptography space, the the early early tech space in the Bay Area, and you know me being me having very little exposure to the Web three or the other crypto space, it's just too specific for me to kind of pick up on. Um, so before we kind of head into all the theory and all the evidences, and before we kind of put the tinfoil caps on, um, I was thinking of kind of doing just a quick recap of who the guy was that we briefly touched on last time, just with a little bit more detail and just a bit more, um, a bit more of, of a primer as to why this guy might have been the founder of Bitcoin or, or what signs could have pointed to him being the founder of Bitcoin. What do you, what do you think about that? Go for it. Let's do it. All righty. But, um, yeah, so so kind of like I mentioned last time, I was I was really biased towards the group theory because I really like the idea that you have a team of people, this typical engineering team, you have a tech lead, you have different developers working under that tech lead, that every person of the group brought something to the team, to the table, whether it's knowledge about economics, knowledge about cryptography, engineering, scalability, so on and so forth. But I suppose we can assume that for this episode, the creator of such a bit like such a Bitcoin is just a pure genius. Um so as some, just like I mentioned, as someone with very little exposure to the crypto space, I thought it would be better to just get to know who Len Sassman is and who he was and what his background was before the early Bitcoin days. So going back to a point we said in an, a very, very early episode about people wanting to glorify founders, it's tempting to just say that Len kind of crash landed on Earth after escaping a planet with too much centralization. Um, but his start was kind of much simpler than that. So Russia? Len was... Oh, what's up? Russia. Russia. <laughs> um, cannot confirm nor deny that. But um, yeah, so, so Len was born in 1980 in, in a small town in Pennsylvania, quickly showed, showed a knack for tech and security. By the age of 18, he was on the Internet Engineering Task Force, a group that led the development of, the, of TCP IP protocol, which is the communications protocol that pretty much the internet runs on. And much later, the Bitcoin network started running on. Um, by the time he was 19, and as was the norm for kind of tech savvy people pre-COVID, um, Len moved to the Bay Area, quickly became an active member of the legendary cypherpunk community. And just a reminder to the listeners, the cypherpunk community's mailing list was where Satoshi actually first announced the release of Bitcoin. Um, so during his time in the Bay Area, Len lived with Brom Cohen. So Brom was a co-founder, um, not a co-founder, sorry, a co contributor to the cypherpunk mailing list. And he was a well-known creator of Mojo and BitTorrent, which is actually something I still think is around right now. Um, and yep. yeah, and, and his time there was spent. Um, so Len, yeah, Len's time there was spent basically um, defending individual privacy and liberties through technological and political means, most notably kind of organizing a protest against government surveillance and the imprisonment of Russian hacker Sure, gonna sure I'm gonna botch this name, but Dmitry Skylarov or Skylarov, um, and he did all that at the age of 21. So, you know, kind of questioning my life choices at the moment. But um, his time there wasn't really all seriousness and, and activism. So many described him to be very lighthearted. So he was known for speeding around San Francisco in a sports car with a get out of jail free card in case he was pulled over and. On one occasion during a cypherpunk meeting, he was like chasing down a squirrel that happened to like walk into the meeting. So if I tried yeah, that kinda... that get out of jail free card shit like today, I would become a hashtag by next weekend. <laughs> yeah, I feel the way that go down is like 
you'd really want to to show them the get out of jail free card and then you quickly reach into your pocket and just that'd be that'd be it uh, yeah. <laughs> but um but yeah so so going back to his, his timeline you know at 22 he quickly set himself apart as a figure in the cryptography space he was presenting at conferences and as we mentioned in last week's episode started a public key cryptography startup um the startup was unfortunately among the many to fall when the dot-com bubble burst but Len's career was just getting started. So he quickly joined um, the, the group that we mentioned last time, which is Network Associates, um, set up interop testing for open PGP implementations, which put, which, which put him in touch with very notable figures in the space. Um, and, and kind of touching on the main thing that we mentioned last time, it was at Network Associates that Len began working alongside a familiar name on the show, Hal Finney. So the first per- Hal Finney was basically the first person to run a Bitcoin node other than Satoshi. And he was the first recipient of Bitcoin sent directly from Satoshi himself, slash herself, slash themselves, whatever that may be. Um, so Hal and Len basically kind of put on display their shared genius by working on remailer technology, which was the pre- precursor to Bitcoin. And kind of simply put into this, re- remailers are basically servers that were meant for sending information anonymously or pseudonymously and if you're wondering yes it was used for the cypherpunk mailing list um so now instead of diving deep into remailers and 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 all the events in lens life associated with them i kind of wanted to fork from this timeline just a a little bit and briefly touch on len the academic because there's a good evidence and links that can be made from his time as a researcher so in 2004 len landed a job as a researcher and a phd candidate at kosik uh, which basically stands for the Computer Security and Industrial Cryptography Research Group of KU Levin slash Lewin in Belgium. Um, the most important part of this point of his life uh, from someone who's just observing it is Len's advisor at the time was a man by the name of David Schaum. Um, so David Schaum was coincidentally known as the father of digital currency who published papers that many believe set the groundwork for the creation of Bitcoin. So, for example, some of the papers he published included the 1983 paper, Blind Signatures for Untraceable Payments, which was talking about the invention of a cryptocurrency, a 1982 dissertation that had code for almost, and emphasis on the almost, um, all elements of the blockchain that was found in the Bitcoin um, white paper. And above all else, uh, Sham also started a company called DigiCash, which was a company where anonymous payments between pseudonyms or pseudonymous figures was the vision. So Len basically worked at Cossack in Belgium until his tragic death in 2011, where he basically continued to research protocols and technologies that were the core components of Bitcoin. So the conclusion to this, kind of before we head into the evidence, if there was a single academic genius behind the creation of Bitcoin, all signs are kind of starting to point to Len. Um, But yeah. So uh, thank you for the recap, but for now sure. um, that was a really good recap of, of some of the meteor evidence that we uncovered last time. And um, I do have some more, um, some of it may be a little more circumstantial. It's not really uh, smoking gun type stuff, but uh, it just kind of helps build the case that Len Sassman was in fact Satoshi Nakamoto, um, including you know some input from pe- people who were involved with Bitcoin in the early days. Not as Satoshi, but I mean, you know, people on Bitcoin talk, uh, on Bitcoin.org, that kind of thing. Uh, early contributors, sort of like Hal. Um, 
you know, one of the quotes that really stuck out to me was um, Gavin Andreessen, who's the uh, founder of the Bitcoin Foundation and one of the earliest people to communicate with Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, you know, he said, quote, I think he's an academic, maybe a postdoc, maybe a professor who just doesn't, who just doesn't want attention, end quote. Um, so m- much like the non-academic work of any doctoral student, Satoshi Nakamoto's work really ramped up heavily during the summer and winter breaks when he likely wasn't taking or possibly grading papers and finals. Um, if you kind of overlay the, the timestamps on the posts made on Bitcoin talk, um and other posts as satoshi nakamoto as well as the emails they tend to fit in with that sort of time period fairly snugly um whoever did this you know whoever did this has a deep understanding of cryptography they've read the academic papers they have a keen intelligence and they're combining the concepts in a genuinely new way again gavin andreessen um so it kind of supports the idea that that uh, this is an academic kind of working on their off hours in order to put together what later became Bitcoin or actually respond to the first queries from the community as soon as Bitcoin became public uh, after January 3rd, 2009. Um, now, if we're focusing on uh, input from people who were involved early uh, or influential people in crypto- cryptography, there's Dan, Kamins- Dan Kaminsky, excuse me, who's a prominent cybersecurity researcher who is one of the actually the first people to have reviewed Satoshi Nakamoto's code and tried to pen test it with about nine different exploits. Um, But he was amazed to find out that Satoshi had already anticipated and patched all of them. That's interesting. Pretty interesting and pretty random. Yeah, so I think that that just like goes on to, first of all, as a bit of a tangent, I think it's hilarious that the founder of the Bitcoin Foundation also has Andreessen as a last name. It's kind of, I know it's not the same one, but quite quite the presence these guys have. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and kind of why, probably why A16Z is kind of uh, heading back into Web3. It's kind of coming full, coming full circle, I guess. Yeah. Um, this was a family but, uh, affair from the get-go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, go, going back to like Dan Kaminsky's realization that um, yeah. the nine different exploits were all patched. I mean, it just speaks to, yeah, this, this person had to, whoever it was who was Satoshi Nakamoto basically had to, no life it a little bit or needed to come yeah. from some sort of infosec background because yeah. the fact that uh, an a academic infosec academic yeah. infosec now, he, exactly. here's the thing so um the fact that satoshi had already anticipated and patched the nine exploits that dan kaminsky basically tried to tried to use i mean this suggests that kaminsky and, and satoshi nakamoto kind of shared a background in infosec uh mm-hmm. and more than just like being researchers in the same space they may have actually worked together Interestingly enough, Len Sassman and Dan Kaminsky actually co-authored a paper demonstrating methods for attacking public security, uh, sorry, public key security infrastructure. Um, you can access this paper online and it's available. You can just like Google their names together and it'll come up. Coincidentally, actually, and this is very t- tangential, but definitely worth looking at. Coincidentally, that paper was written and structured with Latex. It's a document editor for academics, and it was a very unusual choice for somebody inside the cypherpunk circle. So basically, if you had an academic background, you were very likely to have used latex in order to publish a paper. Uh, nobody really used it in, in, in the cypherpunk or digital cash world in order to publish any kind of idea. But do you know what else was written and uh, formatted with uh, latex? What was it? The Bitcoin white paper. Oh, well, yeah. how, how, 
Interesting. Well, how, how is that a, a smoke? How is that not a smoking gun in and of itself? If, I mean, if they use an. No, Satoshi is far from too. the only person to have used latex, right? And also far from the only academic to have used latex. But the fact is, right. if you get a pitch for a new layer one protocol as an investor in these sorts of things today, um, you know, I usually get something that is actually typed up in latex. It's produced in latex. So it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's sort of become a rite of passage for, for people launching a new crypto startup, a new layer one startup. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's it, all based on the use of uh, Satoshi's decision to use it basically in the white paper. Yeah. Cause, cause I mean, the, the way the kind of two things that kind of pop, pop up from this is like, you know, most technologies like AI, like for example, AI, um, is, is they have their roots in academics. So a lot of the new things and the new features that pop up basically have research papers, publications, things that come from professors at universities that don't really care about turning something into a product. So, you know, there's something that, you know, the, the, the AI classes that I took when I was a senior at Loyola Marymount um, kind of had the same thing. Like a lot of the resources that we were given from our professors were all research papers and random links by random professors and random forums and stuff. Yeah. But what I'm saying is like in, in terms of not in terms of Lee Sassman himself being Satoshi Nakamoto, but Len. Satoshi Nakamoto being somewhat of an academic, I feel like that latex link is is kind of a smoking gun. Sort of. Maybe, I, don't, I don't know, kind of, but it's worth mentioning, right? So Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's also, and this is going to catch you by surprise, there's also some evidence to suggest that Satoshi was either European or based in Europe, or both. Now, all this time, we've been talking about Len Sassman being the, the original San Francisco cypherpunk. And like you just said minutes ago, he was born and raised in a tiny Pennsylvania town. Mm -hmm. So here's something that uh, actually the New Yorker magazine actually published an, an article about this, uh, I don't know, like six, seven years ago, I think, that noted Satoshi also may have been European. And there's a number of arguments for this. <clears throat> First off, Satoshi uses words that are distinctly British, all right? He mentions words or phrases actually like bloody difficult, uh, flat, you know, referring to his apartment, maths as opposed to the American math, and gray um, with an E and not an A. And he was also using the day, month, year time format, which is not something you'd see for for a, a proper cheeseburger eating American. American, which would be month, day, year, right? So, yeah, yeah. And and when he's talking about currencies, all right, now he throws us another curveball. The currencies he mentions include euros. And oddly enough, not the British pound. Now, oh. if this was, you know, a true red coat, they would be talking about the pound a lot more than they would be talking about the euro. Uh, right. Red coat is not a slur. I can use it. Uh, so Bitcoin's yes. <laughs> Genesis block, I should say, includes a headline um, from that day's copy of the Times newspaper, right? So the Times, um, the copy from the 3rd of January, 2009, uh, the headline specifically was Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks. Oh, because that was around the time where, yeah, the, the, the people were still reeling from 2008. Right, right. So 3rd of January, 2009, this is when, this is like a couple months after Lehman, you know, they had already bailed mm -hmm. out the banks once with like TARP in the US, Troubled Asset Recovery Program. There are other programs out there around the world. Um there were secondary bailouts for some institutions. So again, this headline, Chancellor on Brink of Second Bailout for Banks, appears in block one in the Genesis block uh, of Bitcoin. So here's the thing about this headline. It was specific to the print version. It did not appear online. Oh. So 
Okay. It was specific to the print version, right? Which was only circulated in the UK and in mainland Europe. You know, in 2009, by the way, the Times was a top 10 newspaper in Belgium, where Len would have been a student at Kosik. Yeah, yeah. I okay. was going to say, like, going going back to, it, to what I was talking about, like, Len actually worked at Kosik and lived in Belgium until his death in 2011. So yeah. it's all kind of lining up. And another interesting thing about the Times is that it's a quote heavily used pay, sorry quote heavily used by scholars and researchers because of its widespread availability in libraries and detailed index end quote. This is as per the new newspaper's Wikipedia page. Yeah, so the academic so we have part comes back in. Europe, academic, mm-hmm. top ten in Belgium. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you think about it, like if if Len, if if Satoshi, if anyone, if Satoshi was in America and wanted to include a random headline from a paper in America about some financial news, it would be Wall Street Journal, New York Times. Why would they go for a headline that only appeared in a print version that was in the top ten selections in Belgium? Yeah, and, right? and one that's readily available, or one that's heavily used by scholars and researchers too. You know, if to me, you know, again, it's not a smoking gun. But if I had to pick one thing to be the smoking gun, if I were writing a novel about it, I think it would be that. Because how I would somebody I, in the states go get a print version of the Times, especially the one that was like you know well circulated in Europe, specifically in Belgium, among academic circles? Yeah, I think it's entirely possible that like Len Sassman was sitting at his desk, had you know brought in a paper. Uh, from the university library, or he bought it from a cafe near the university, threw it on his desk and said, hmm, what do I throw in, in the Bitcoin Genesis block to really you know, give everyone the libertarian idea behind why I'm doing this and I want the government to get the hell out of money. It's like, ah, mm-hmm. use that headline. Chancellor bailing use out the banks twice. Yeah. If, if I were to write uh, a document about, if I were to write a book about this, I'd say 90% of my efforts just be the fact that Satoshi's most probably a researcher in Europe and Len Sassman kind of fits that description. Yeah. But I'd I'd allocate like 10% of the content in that book with a whole latex connection too. Yeah, it's just there's there's so many of these little things here and there. Okay, now we're we're sitting here and we're making the case for Satoshi uh being Belgian, right? Mm-hmm. Not quite. So again, remember last episode we talked about things like, you know, his his involvement with like, you know, famous remailing protocols and his his uh, you know running a node for it and being a, a moderator and that kind of a thing i mean these are skill sets necessary to to do a lot of what he did as satoshi nakamoto and there are still a ton of links and we're not going to go through all of them like listen to part one uh, a ton of links to the san francisco cypherpunk movement which we know for a fact that len sassman was a part of mm-hmm. you know but maybe there's something kind of bridging this uh this uh question of is is Satoshi American? Is Satoshi European? Maybe he was an American living in Europe, like Len Sassman. Um, but then again, why was he using British vernacular, like bloody and flat and maths as an American? Yeah. A little weird, no? Very. So how do we know whether Len Sassman would actually say these kinds of things? Now, the thing is, you know, the most notable uh, recording of Len Sassman is him speaking at um uh dartmouth college in uh, new hampshire um you know he, he spoke about a number of topics like in compsci but he wasn't you, you couldn't really catch any overt you know kind of british mannerisms there however mm-hmm. if you go to len sassman's uh twitter 
I'm going to read four tweets from you, for you. Okay. Okay. So from uh, read four tweets from Len Sassman for you. Okay. At Len Sassman, January 20th, 2011. Wow. Is the 10th anniversary of BitTorrent really coming up in a few months? I remember the release party around 10 hackers in a small SF flat. Len Sassman, April. Yep. April 26, 2011. Having gotten used to the gray in my beard, gray with an E, I'm surprised Mm. at how distressing finding my first gray mustache hair. Gray with an Hmm. E, right? Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't misread that, by the way, just to be clear. Um, <clears throat> Len Sassman, February 25th, 2011. Dear every phone manufacturer in the world, must SIP configuration be so bloody difficult? Do you get kickbacks from the telcos for that? Bloody. Bloody. Again, this is a guy born and raised in Pennsylvania, lived in San Francisco. Len Sassman, mm-hmm. August 17th, 2010. PZ Myers, sadly, does not understand maths, particularly AIT, which shows up in nature quite often. Maths with an S, as opposed to the American math. I'd, I'd ask you to reread all four tweets in a British accent, but I think the evidence is kind of clear here, though. Yeah. So Len is an American who uses British English and was living uh, in Europe, which really stacks up with the evidence for Satoshi. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So... Okay, now that we're on the topic of Twitter, right? Like Lens Twitter specifically. And by the way, at Len Sassman, L-E-N-S-A-S-S-A-M-A-N, as of this recording, is still live on Twitter. You can go read all his tweets. It's entirely possible. Satoshi, Right, yeah. Those those four tweets are still up. Yeah, yeah, you can go look them up. Okay, so now that we're on the topic of Twitter, um, Satoshi Nakamoto's posting history suggests a European night owl posting late at night or early in the morning hours. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you overlay a chart of Satoshi's daily posts uh, and emails, you know, and you overlay that with Len's Twitter activity, they seem to correspond pretty closely. So he was writing some of these tweets the same times he was at the same time he was writing the Satoshi posts on Bitcoin Talk. Right. Again, not a smoking gun, but pretty compelling. Yeah, so something is something as subconscious as activity. Like if I was running some sort of anonymous Twitter account, I'd only use it by the time I'm on Twitter during my day, which is when I'm on my yep. personal account as well. So I think this any single man, like woman or man, won't really notice it, but you'd notice that pattern in the data. And 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 this yep. is where this thing is headed, it seems like. Yeah, I mean, okay, so that's that's his Twitter activity. Another thing is, you know, whoever created Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto, must have had a lot to do with the early kind of the genesis stage of P2P networks. All right. So although Bitcoin was not the first ever cryptocurrency, again, there was stuff like Digicash and, and Hashcash and uh, eGold, you know, all that crap. So although Bitcoin was not the first cryptocurrency, it was the first to be based on a fully P2P distributed network. Every other attempt at cryptocurrency always had like some centralized structure or some like mint, so to speak. Um, This is emphasized literally in like the first words Satoshi Nakamoto spoke on the white paper. Quote, I've been working on a new electronic cash system that's fully peer-to-peer with no trusted third party. That's what set it apart. The no trusted third party, not the first digital cash. So Dan Kaminsky noted, quote, uh, again, this is the cybersecurity expert. 
Quote, Satoshi needed to understand economics, cryptography, and P2P networking in order to build Bitcoin, end quote. And Len had an atypically strong understanding of all three of those topics. Okay. So I oh, want to introduce, interesting. yeah, I want to introduce so, someone to the mix here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Bram Cohen. Okay. Oh, his roommate when he moved to SF. Right. His roommate when he yeah. moved to San Francisco. And there are photos of the guys together. There's quite a few, actually. So um, Bram Cohen is best known as the creator of one of the most broadly used P2P protocols ever, BitTorrent. Mm-hmm. So between 2000 and 2002, Brahm developed a revolutionary P2P network called um, Mojo Nation, uh, which used something called Mojo Tokens as a form of digital currency, which te- technically makes it one of the first digital currencies available to the public. So uh, Brahm says uh, Mojo Nation was a glorious failure. It went down in flames, but directly led to BitTorrent and Bitcoin. There are few failures anywhere near that successful. End quote. The way Mojination worked, by the way, is that you had tokens, okay, like the money, that could be right. exchanged for the storage of files, uh, and those files would be encrypted and encoded into blocks that would be uploaded and distributed to a whole network of nodes. So you're seeing the Bitcoin parallels already a little bit there, right? Yeah, structurally, it's very similar. Yeah, you know, you got blocks, you got nodes, you know, again, these weren't things that were kind of invented for Bitcoin, like, you know, conceptually, they had existed in cryptography and computer science for a while, but the way that all came together. Right. Um, So the reason this token isn't just a conventional, you know, on platform type credit, like, oh, your AWS credit, like that's not a currency, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, the thing is, this could be exchanged for U.S. dollars and vice versa. You can also, you know, use your U.S. dollars to buy some Mojo tokens. Uh, it also included a very thinly veiled kind of primary reference to what we now call tokenomics. So here's another quote. So a unit of Mojo represents a slice of the current capabilities of the system as a whole. If you perform, uh, if you perform work for me now, I give you credits. In the future, when the network is larger, those credits will represent a slice of a much larger pie. And so I've increased value when you spend them, end quote. This is a direct quote from Bram Cohen. So again, the very basics of what we now kind of think of as the monetary policy of any coin uh, organized decentralized system. So Satoshi used a very similar um, uh, method to describe tokenomics in the Bitcoin ecosystem. Uh, it's a little shorter, I think a little more eloquent quote, it has the potential feedback loop as users increase, the value goes up, which could attract more users to take advantage of the increasing value End quote. So you see right. the parallels that, between BitTorrent and Bitcoin. Yeah. Yeah. Like they're, they're beginning to structurally sound very similar. And then I do see, you know, the, the one sort of new piece of information that you brought up when, when you were talking about, um, the, the, the quote from Dan, Dan Kaminsky basically earlier, where you said, Len had an atypically strong understanding in all three of those topics, so three topics, including economics. Yeah. I'm kind of noticing right now where like, yeah, he, he, as more people, as more users become involved in a currency that is fixed and is kind of deflationary, the value, well, demand's going to go up for it, which means its value is going to go up. So Yep. I, again, like all, everything is kind of aligning a little bit and pointing in the same direction. Yeah. So again, Bitcoin was, was born from the trials and errors of a thousand projects before it. Right. right. So uh, going back to Mojo nation, right. And again, it, it's important to me because I'm sure this shaped lens thinking 
um, of cryptocurrencies, decentralized cryptocurrencies specifically, and how they should function. Because again, he was in the apartment where this was all being built out with Brom or by Brom mainly. Right. Mojo Nation lacked the monetary policy controls, if you will, to prevent sudden and extreme devaluation from which there is no recovery from like a supply side issue of that token itself. So first mm-hmm. off, you know they they relied on a central mint server, um, and and second, there was nothing in the Mojo token arithmetic that would you know build in the deflation, uh, and otherwise ensure that demand for the token would increase faster than the supply, and therefore increasing the value the value of the token and also increasing the value of the network in a way that ensured that each token would continue to rise in value. That that was not built into the Mojo Nation system. So, hence, hence the glorious failure part. Yes, hence the, hence the glorious failure. So in Bitcoin, mm-hmm. you know, Bitcoin has the rewards in in kind of fixed time intervals uh, for mining coin for mining coin as time goes on, and there's also a hard cap of 21 million on the number of tokens that can exist, um, number of Bitcoins that can exist ever. So by the way, you can debate whether or not that's a good idea. All right, like you know the 21 million cap and that kind of thing. Um, but one thing is for sure, and that's that the hard caps will absolutely cause deflation as demand continues to grow. Um, you may know, by the way, 90% of all Bitcoin has already been mined. And in order to mine the other 10%, it's going to be until about 2140, the year 2140, when the last Bitcoin is mined. Um, wow. Is it is that because yeah. the, the energy resources needed to mine that last 10% is just very, very... Well, no, because rewards Complex. keep having rewards so the keep... Re- reverse exponential function, if you can imagine it, right? So, oh, okay. So, so is it like every every the, the more you mine, the more you the less you get when you mine, basically. Yep. So Satoshi, by the way, also noted that coins lost to wallets that can no longer be accessed would basically be a gift to everyone because it would only contribute even more to the deflationary environment. Now you have dead coins; they'll never move. Mm-hmm. So. Um, you know, I honestly, I wonder how many coins are stuck in that kind of limbo, but in the case that Satoshi is truly Len Sassman, um, that would be Len's enduring gift to the Bitcoin community, because imagine the deflation that he is directly bringing on, uh, by having 1 million tokens locked up in Satoshi's wallet. Oh, you that know? is true. Cause, cause there's a total of 21 million Bitcoins out there. Yeah. It's the Bitcoin that the mother of all frauds, uh, Craig Wright, would be able to move if he were Satoshi, but he's not because he doesn't have the private keys to do so because he's a fraud and a liar and a thief. Anyhow, so um, in 2000, where are we? 2001. 2001? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in 2001, Brom Cohen launches BitTorrent. Uh, So BitTorrent is a P2P alternative to like the more centralized Napster. Um, Mm. And this system kind of foreshadows Bitcoin's distributed node-based model, like we said, and the system of consensus, um, as well as like, you know, protocol level incentives to keep all actors acting in their particular role. So this is is one of the first examples of a sustainable node-based decentralized network with economics game theory built in. Uh, And BitTorrent, by the way, still continues to, to run today, you know? Um, and the parallels between BitTorrent and Bitcoin, by the way, absolutely cannot be denied. Like you can write a PhD thesis on the parallels between those two systems. And, uh, honestly, it makes sense because, you know, the founder of BitTorrent and the person who we think the founder is Bit- of Bitcoin shared a living room. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, 
that knowledge spillover would would definitely have happened. Um, so Len, by the way, once told Brom, and Brom confirmed this. Uh, he said BitTorrent would make him bigger than uh, Sean Fanning, the you know the Napster founder. So right. Satoshi Nakamoto, by the way, later referenced Napster when explaining the need for a fully decentralized system. "Quote: Governments are good at cutting off the heads of a centrally controlled network like Napster, but pure P2P networks like Nutella, you know, based on BitTorrent uh, and mm-hmm. Tor, seem to be holding their own." End quote. Hmm. Um. So clearly that was a salient point in Len Sassman's mind if he in fact made the made that reference when speaking as Satoshi. Uh, in 2002, so again, this is just to show, to show you how close Brahm and Len were. In 2002, Len and Brahm co-founded a conference called CodeCon, uh, which was focused on, quote, highly practical projects with working code, end quote. At CodeCon of 2005, so the third such event, Hal Finney, the recipient of the first Bitcoin, eventually. Hal mm-hmm. Finney introduced reusable proofs, uh, sorry, reusable proof of work via a modified BitTorrent client that sends P2P digital currency. So he modifies BitTorrent to be something that looks like an early prototype of Bitcoin. And who's sitting yeah. there watching this happening? Len Sassman. Len Sassman. So digital currency, by the way, as a whole, featured very prominently at CodeCon, including a demonstration of um, Adam Beck's Hashcash, uh, mm-hmm. as well as Mnet, which was a fully open source and decentralized successor to Mojo Nation. Um, the co-founders of Mojo Nation, uh, Zuko Wilcox, uh, Zuko, by the way, known for later founding Zcash, which I think you can trade on Coinbase now. Mm-hmm. Um, so Zuko Wilcox and Jim McCoy, um, both, by the way, rumored to be Satoshi Nakamoto, both deny it. Uh, Zuko was one of Satoshi's first collaborators as well, um, and he was an employee of uh, David Shom at DigiCash. And again, David Shom oh. being the PhD advisor of Len Sassman yeah. at Kosick. At, at Kosick. Right. So I see it's just a big spider web and all connects together. So yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, Zuko later you know goes on to start Zcash, and Zcash is sort of focused on privacy. And I'm pretty sure they did this prior to Monero, that super private digital currency. Um, Zuko, by the way, is also the creator of what's called Zuko's Triangle Dilemma. So it, it's it's an intricate concept, but I'll boil it down to this: it's decentralized, human meaningful, and secure. Pick two. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Decentralized, human, meaningful, and secure. Yeah. Pick two, basically. So, and you can have a whole other debate as to where Bitcoin falls and all that. But, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, look, I, I to make just the, the final few points for Len Sassman being Satoshi. And by the way, if all of this evidence has not swayed you in the slightest, then I don't know what else to say. I'm not saying it absolutely <laughs> convinced you. But if it has not even gotten you to ask the question is of, you know, is, is Satoshi Nakamoto really Lens Aspen? Then, yeah I, yeah, I don't know what to say to you. But to make my final points, uh, quoting Satoshi, I wish you wouldn't keep talking about me. Maybe instead make it about the open source project and give more credit to your dev contributors, end quote. So Satoshi was very clear that he had absolutely no intention to unmask himself right? He was not looking for the notoriety of having created Bitcoin. And by the way, when he said this, it wasn't even clear Bitcoin would re- would even be successful. It could have been like, you know, any other attempt at digital currency that failed. 
something mm-hmm. that only the nerd, nerds would have heard of and would not be on everyone's phone on everyone's uh you know asset portfolio right. so <clears throat> it's important to note that satoshi had a very hacktivist approach approach to the release of his idea he took very very different steps compared to like many people in the past so unlike you know sham or stefan brand um and like a whole bunch of others he never filed for a patent he never founded a closed like venture-backed company. He never had anything to do with any corporate partnership to drive adoption. He just created it and released it to the public just to see what would happen. So mm-hmm. Len, by the way, similarly never took credit. Um, well, I mean, Len as Len, he he never took credit mm-hmm. uh, or or sought like you know kind of legal IP protections for anything he did, like PGP security for Mixmaster remailing for GNU privacy guard privacy guard nothing he he was never that sort of person um mm-hmm. it was all about like open source and building for the world len was passionate about the need to defend open knowledge for all and technological advancement without corporate or governmental interference that was absolutely core to his philosophy and how can you not respect so, that right right so so the decentralization not only lies in the things that he's creating but also the method that creates the thing he's going after basically yep. it's it's basically kind of like a if if you yeah I, I feel like it kind of it's a nice link back to zuko's triangle dilemma it's like okay we want like like if i was in len sassman's shoes and i was like okay i need to create this decentralized cryptocurrency or like i need to create a bitcoin um i don't want to create it myself or go to some vc ask for money and funding and then create it and have this thing's image be this is decentralized. This is for everyone. This is for economic and financial freedom. I mean, by the way, if Bitcoin was some like VC backed startup where there was a CEO who could control the goings on, I, I Bitcoin would have failed like without a doubt. The whole point of it True. is decentralized. What's the point if it has a CEO, right? Um, yeah. And I mean, even, even looking at the tech, the tech space back in 2008, 2009, like once the first crypto winter would have hit, you just have down round after down round and the company would just fizzle out honestly yeah and then how do you value the currency if it's supposed to be a standalone currency but it's tied to your round as a startup yeah it's it's just dumb but yeah so it, it appears like the only way that a truly digital peer-to-peer cash system could function is if is if it were this you know kind of uh cypherpunk hacker project yeah um by the way, Satoshi, you know, he was very committed to like open internet, which is kind of a libertarian ideal, even though he wasn't really a political person. Like Satoshi Nakamoto never publicly like endorsed a candidate or anything of the like. But, um, you know, he, he did say, by the way, that, quote, um, Bitcoin was very attractive to the libertarian viewpoint, end quote, end quote. And it could, quote, win a major battle in the arms race and gain a new territory of freedom for several years end quote, which absolutely makes sense seeing that what's happening now, for example, you know, right. like I just, I just tweeted back at somebody on, on Twitter saying like, you know, I just came back from Turkey where, you know, the currency is basically failing and there are ads mm-hmm. for Bitcoin absolutely everywhere. So the arms race for, for becoming a, a currency, uh, it's alive and well. And, you know, 10 years ago, it was only like junkies on, on Agora and Silk Road that use this shit. And, you know, now there's a small country that uses it. So where's it going to be 10 years from now? Um, You know, and there's, there's one more comment from Brahm that I think is absolutely worth noting because it's, it's really remarkable. Uh, Brahm, Brahm Cohen, again, founder of BitTorrent tweeted, Len also tried me 
to get to publish BitTorrent pseudonymously, which seems indicative of something. End quote. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. If and now I know we're saying nothing's really a smoking gun, but if there is one, that's got that, that that has to be it. Yeah. So out of out of respect for Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, aka uh, Len Sassman, um, mm-hmm. I want to include one quote that was actually spoken by actually uh, published, sorry, by by Len, that I think really captures his ethos and 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 you know kind of really illustrates the drive behind the creation of Bitcoin. This is our heritage. This research, these ideas that we have, that is leading to knowledge that no human in history has had the opportunity to have before. This is what we're going to be handing down to future generations. We need to make sure we are not backed into a corner where we are not able to distribute this research to others and that this isn't locked up in IP lawyer vaults. Hmm. Gives you an idea of what his mindset is when it comes to dedication to open source and free knowledge. Yes, exactly. And the fact that, you know, in another quote that he said that this is going to appeal to the libertarian viewpoint and, and, it, it kind of goes to show that he just opposes all sorts of centralization and control of any either IP or technology. Yeah. You know, there, there was something that I was actually thinking of, and I didn't include this in my research or my notes for, for these episodes. Um, everyone we have spoken to who has denied that there was Satoshi Nakamoto, um, at least the people who are in the cypherpunk movement, people who confirm their involvement with like Bitcoin talk, with the forums talking about Bitcoin, or people who had spoken to Satoshi via his Proton Mail account, um, you know, they all said like, you know, hey, we were we were early contributors, we were parts of the we were part of the community, we spoke to him, we interacted with him, you know, we we built things around it, but we were not Satoshi, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of these people. You know, we're, we're proud of the fact, you know, or at least at the very least, not hiding the fact that they were um, early conversationalists, really, people who had spoken to Satoshi in the early days. And all of these people were very, very deep in the cryptography and had previous attempts attempts at, at building like digital cash systems, that kind of a thing. So it would make sense that they would be very interested to speak with Satoshi and just like really go through what he had built and try to find vulnerabilities and critique it and adopt it and build around it. Len Sassman is definitely one of those people where he was definitely into cryptography, definitely into economics, definitely into like libertarian pro- uh, projects for like government free cash. Um, honestly, I find it odd that Len Sassman never once spoke to Satoshi, never posted on the Bitcoin talk forums, nothing. There is no conversation between Len and Satoshi. And yet he seems right. like the person who would be most interested in these kinds of conversations. Like he didn't yeah. even try to put up the ruse of like not being Satoshi by having conversations with Satoshi. That is a good point. And I, and I think that's also another subconscious thing of like, that goes back to an earlier point that we mentioned not too long ago, which was um, if you overlay the activity of Satoshi's posts and just lens activity, generally speaking, you know, from lens perspective, he's like, as long as, as long as I'm tweeting and as long as Satoshi's tweeting, um, you know, people will, will will not be able to make that connection. So I totally yeah, see I mean, it. Can, can you imagine any cracks. world? Can you imagine any world where Len Len is not Satoshi Nakamoto and was completely and totally disinterested in what was up till then uh, the best example of a successful uh, digital cash initiative? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like the 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 Europe 
like the 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 academic link the geographic link of 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 the the you know the the headline of the of the financial times in the in the genesis block the his push for something to be shared common and open source and things appealing to libertarian perspectives and then more importantly and finally that that final nail in the coffin which was you know len trying to convince brom cohen to publish BitTorrent pseudonymously um, again, like, yeah, I, I'm really fighting the urge to not say all of this is just a smoking gun. He's definitely Satoshi Nakamoto, but all the signs are pointing to one place. And I, I think the question is like, with this is, okay, if, if Len was still alive today and he heard this episode, he would have been like, God, these guys are annoying. Screw Satoshi. Just worry about Bitcoin. Right. Yeah. But it's, I feel like it's like human, human heritage, like the human heritage, like it's, it's human nature sort of to just basically go, okay, this, this is an awesome invention. You know, it, it's time to kind of give credit to the person that invented it. And, and right now, especially taking into consideration everything that we talked about, it just seems to be Len. I, I really think Len would be fighting tooth and nail to keep his identity a secret if he were around today, seeing how huge Bitcoin has gotten. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, again, just look at look at what Bitcoin has done in 10 years. It went from like niche, nerdy, weird internet currency mm-hmm. to an official currency of the, of the state of El Salvador and something that people yeah. like Hillary Clinton had said, you know, posed a real threat to the uh, status of the United States dollar as a reserve currency. Mm-hmm. Um, the implications of of Bitcoin being successful in its most grand ambitions for world banking and for the world financial system and world governments, the implications are profound. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it doesn't accomplish every single one of those things, even then the implications are profound. Yeah. Len would definitely be proud of that. I'm, I'm certain Len would be interested to see what is going on with web three and how, you know, and, and, and how authoritarian regimes are absolutely opposed to, to crypto and to web three, because it helps protect people's, um, privacy, uh, protect their purchasing power. Like these are very kind of like crypto libertarian ideals and they appeal to most people without it having to be attached to some kind of political party or political platform. Um, I think he'd be proud of what he built. And I think he would be absolutely definitely proud of having his name erased from the record. Right. Yeah. I, I definitely think so too. And I think, you know, on top of it all, you know, I, like I mentioned in the previous episode, a couple of weeks ago, I went to launch house here in Beverly Hills in LA. And I was talking to all these different founders working on web three and creator economy startups. And the number one thing that they said was the data belongs to the creators. Like the data is yours. Yeah. This is your privacy. And the fact that all of it is built off of technologies that lend and and Hal and everyone at that time kind of built the 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 bedrock or the groundwork for um yeah it, it would it, i'm not sure if the guy was emotional or anything but i'm sure it, it would bring a tear to his eye <laughs> you know yeah yeah and that wow. is why i think i know who satoshi nakamoto is yeah i mean i'm personally still like I, I, every time i think of someone who could be a genius or an amalgamation of all that different knowledge into one person like i keep thinking it's a team of engineers like maybe it was the cypherpunks 
that were Satoshi Nakamoto, Satoshi Nakamoto. But if there was ever one person, all signs point 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 to Len. Yep. Yeah. Yes, it does. Wow. This is I'm. I feel like I feel like there should be more of an like an intersection between, you know, the the thrill of like true true crime who did it versus like revolutionary inventions in tech. I feel like that'd be a really good a really good topic to try, kind of like dive into. Yeah, it's just I, I'm not sure we have as many, you know, absolute enigmas as as right. Satoshi Nakamoto, right? So. Yeah, yeah, and in terms of an anonymous founder, like. He's the only person I, I, this is the only case I've, I've heard of. So, yeah. Well, I feel grossly underaccomplished now. How about you? <laughs> I mean, this guy was organizing protests at 21, even whether he was Satoshi or not. Yeah. I, I need to kind of like take today to kind of rethink my life a little. Well, I mean, yeah, I am working on some cool shit, but, but still, <laughs> I mean, at 21, you, uh, get your fingers stuck in the paper towel dispenser at the Chipotle bathroom. So perhaps you are not the same. No, no, we're, we're close, but, 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 but no cigar. You, you cannot compare. Yeah. You cannot compare apples to burritos for sure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Alrighty then.